0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. When I started my undergraduate years at Milligan College in 1995, its interdisciplinary humanities sequence was already a well-established hallmark of its educational project. In each of my first four semesters there in the 1990s, we read history and theology and literature and philosophy and all kinds of texts from different eras, always letting each inform the other. Dr. Roosevelt Montaz's journey from the Dominican Republic to New York City differs from my journey from Indiana to Tennessee geographically, but the same kinds of texts, the same kinds of readings, the same kinds of conversations seem to be part of his story as well as they are of mine. And so when I heard about this book, Rescuing Socrates from Princeton University Press, I knew that I wanted to invite him on to Christian Humanist Profiles to talk about them. Dr. Montaz, welcome to Christian Humanist
1: Profiles. Thank you, Nathan. It's a real pleasure to be with you.
0: Very good. This is a curious book. It's part memoir and it's part meditation on four very influential writers and part history of Columbia University's core curriculum and part polemic against those forces arrayed against liberal education. I'm gonna ask mainly questions today about the educational side of things. So anytime that you, Dr. Montaz, want to drift from one of these projects to the others, feel free. But I wanna start with your peculiarly American vision of liberal education, an education for all people because all people are inherently free. So how does this differ from Aristotle's or Boethius's or ancient, other ancient articulation of liberal education?
1: Um, thank you for that question this as you as you put it particularly american vision of liberal education differs substantially from the vision worked out by the ancient writers um, and it does so on the axis of the fact that we are a democracy um, now we're of course a republican form of governments that is a representative democracy rather than a direct democracy as the ancients understood democracy to be. Um, But that gets at the difference right there because Aristotle, Boethius, and and other ancient writers, uh, first of all, are deeply suspicious of democracy and simply don't accept our sort of Premise, our um self-evident, what is a self taken to be as a self-evident truth in the American governments, that all people are equal, that they are endowed by their creators, creator with inalienable rights, and that among those are the rights to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, and a uh, instituting a government with their consent to secure those rights. So those are notions, um, that are absolutely, would be absolutely alien to the ancients. So they conceive of liberal education as an education for those who rule. That is an education for, in the case of a democracy, the citizens of a democracy. Um, Take Athens, where Aristotle's writing and where he is thinking about the role of liberal education. Athens is a democracy, a direct democracy, that is every citizen of Athens is involved in making laws, in sitting in juries and serving in the army, formulating strategy, holding political office. Um, every citizen has to carry out these tasks, so then the question is what kind of education prepares the citizen for those kinds of tasks? Now citizens in Athens are a minority, that's really important. Athens is a slave society. So liberal education is is explicitly distinguished from servile education or slave education. This is the education that will equip an individual to participate in collective self-governance. Now, transfer that to the American context in which we are committed to universal democracy, in which we are committed to every individual having a voice, a say, agency, in our collective self-governance. That means that in the American context, indeed in any universal democratic context, liberal education is going to be universal education. Liberal education will need to be spread throughout the population with that same vision of equipping the individual to participate in the complex task, a deliberative task, a thinking task, a dialoguing task, a questioning task of self-governance.
0: Right. And what makes this interesting, I mean, especially the way that you explored in this book, is that against that aspiration, and I'm going to call it an aspiration because you deal at some length with the ways in which it fails to be a reality. But how does your conviction that liberal education in the 21st century should be available across uh, class lines, stand in tension with, you know, trends in American college in our own move, in, in our own moment, pardon me, uh, what is happening to liberal education uh, that, that threatens
1: that aspiration? There are several points of pressure on liberal education today. Um, and let me pick out two that are especially important. So one has to do with the increasingly dominant view of college education in transactional terms. That is, college education as vocational professional training that the point of college is to prepare an individual for a well-paying job that is to equip the individual with the capacity to make a good living kind of economic material security and prosperity as the the point of liber- of of college education now i'm not against that notion and i think that that notion is 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 appropriate that uh, higher education is one of the critical ladders of upward mobility available in our society. So there is no question that that should be a role of college. But that aspect of a college education has come to dominate public perception and even the perception and the conversation among leaders of higher education, a kind of an exclusively pragmatic, instrumental market-driven view of liberal education, uh, I'm sorry, of, of college education. So that is one of the points of pressure that makes the practice of liberal education a kind of countercultural, unintuitive. Sometimes people just don't understand. People sometimes just can't imagine what could possibly be the point of a college education except this kind of economic empowerment. Um, another point of, of, of tension is the increasing economic polarization of our society the fact that higher education is becoming less and less accessible, less and less a a real possibility for larger and larger swaths of the population. That is, they don't have the educational preparation and the cultural and economic capital to even think about college. That is, we are structurally denying thousands and thousands of people and an increasing number of people from the possibility of attending college. Um and there is a second kind of a, a a subheading to that to that economic polarization um challenge to to accessibility to liberal education, which is that low-income students are increasing that do get to college are increasingly steered towards practical, pre-professional, vocational, technical education. That is a sense that because for them, higher education is going to serve especially as this latter economic advancement. It should be focused exclusively or nearly exclusively on practical ends. Much of that education delivered online. So those are two points that make liberal education kind of a an endangered species in our um, in our in our higher education system. and there are other um, points of pressure too, but those are those are those are very large and very significant.
0: Right. And we definitely see that, Uh, you know, I'm a a professor, an English professor at a small uh, evangelical college, and we certainly see that trend, uh, you know, towards our lower income students, especially our first generation college students uh, gravitating almost immediately, either towards business majors or, uh, you know, majors that are going to land them in, you know, what I call the youth sports industry, right? Either sports management or kinesiology. Pre physical therapy kinds of things, so yeah. uh, and, it, it's interesting. Is, you would think evangelicals would have some kind of uh, yeah. immunity to that, but we certainly don't.
1: No, we 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 all live in the same world, um, and are and are, you know, faced with the same kind of cultural cultural ethos. But let me say that the, what you point out is one of the reasons why we have to deliver liberal education independent of the major. That right. is Say more it's about totally that. Yeah. fine, right? Totally fine for students, especially low-income students to choose the careers that will most kind of effectively get them out of poverty. Um, but we must not make a liberal education contingent on the major that they choose. We have to find ways of providing liberal education for every major, the foundation for every major, so that you don't have to get a liberal education at the expense of an economically marketably, marketable specialization.
0: That makes good sense, that makes good sense. I want, I want to talk about one more point in your positive case for a, a democratized liberal education before we turn to the four uh, big texts that you write about in this book. And that, is, that has to do with uh, the democratizing effect of the actual reading uh, in a, a liberal education. Uh, you know, One of your recurring claims is that reading Homer and Seneca and Chaucer and Spivak together and I'm not sure if you'd agree with that last one, but I wanted to throw it in there. Um, contrary, contrary to what some people claim, actually brings students into uh, a body politic of sorts when they partake of it. So talk for a moment about the democracy that emerges from reading together.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, one of the things that a democracy requires is a common vocabulary. That is, a, a democracy can only flourish when there is a sufficiently compatible notion of the common good among its among its participants. And one of the way that one of the way that you achieve that is through education. Um, and education, you know, even when it is public education in the way that it is in the United States, where it's kind of rigorously uh, walled off from religion, public education, education of any sort. Is moral education in a deep sense, that is, it instills values, it inst- instills standards, it instills norms um, and conventions of living together, of, of of common pursuit of a of a good. Um, we in the society that has emerged from the what is roughly called the Western tradition, that is, our institutions, our laws, our our, our political procedures, our economy our uh, very educational system, uh, emerged in my particular history. So educating students in that history, introducing them to the kind of foundational ideas and foundational debates that have shaped our society, in fact, gives us the common vocabulary and the common foundation through which we can uh, transact and uh, address contemporary problems. Um, And that is uh, a, a a commonality that is absolutely necessary for the project of democratic citizenship. Um, Now that commonality does not exclude and does not come at the expense of recognition and valuation, even celebration of our contemporary diversity. Uh, But we have to understand that our contemporary diversity is the result of a particular trajectory cultural trajectory and trajectory of values we have come to value appreciate and recognize the importance of diversity that history that led us to that point is itself not characterized by the contemporary diversity that is if you look at the 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 sources of our culture the sources of our institutions of our categories um they are not going to reflect that that contemporary diversity so we must kind of um calibrate our um approach our um emphasis on a diversity of voices as we move back in time and that diversity of voices becomes less and less uh present
0: right and it becomes less and less present largely because of the explosion of literacy in the most recent 500 years right i mean you know before roughly speaking i mean you know the movable print uh printing or movable type pardon me printing press and Mm -hmm. the protestant reformation literacy remains an elite uh endeavor in just about every civilization does it not
1: right um so the 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 invention of the of the printing press and the spread of literacy are absolutely critical and they are uh, kind of hand in glove with societal developments that open up the, the um, kind of the, the fountains of learning to, to women, um, the largest ex- excluded group in history, um, and then to the poor, um, or at least the non-elite, the next largest excluded group. Um, so this kind of um, opening up um, this trajectory of greater inclusion um, and kind of a spread of access, is one of the big stories of our of our civilization and what where we are today emerges from that trajectory um and reflects the ways in which that trajectory was um you know incomplete unformed in in the past
0: right right i'm reminded of a uh, a talk that i once heard by the theologian jürgen moltmann he he was talking about the the paradoxes and the confusions that come with you know the reasonable and good call for Uh, you know, a greater diversity in seminary reading lists. And he said uh, he had a very concerned group of graduate students come to him and, you know, say that uh, we need more uh, representation from different continents, from women, from sexual minorities, and, you know, what we need to do is get away from the, uh, you know, the hegemony of European white males. It's just as Karl Marx said, and that's where we left off the story, because that's where you could leave off the story, right? Because, uh, you know, the, the the idea that you should do that, uh, you know, paradoxically and, you know, uh, in a confusing manner, I mean, you know, has roots in,
1: you know, uh, German Hegelian disputes. Exactly. I mean, you mentioned before Gayatri Spivak alongside kind of canonical writers, and um, that it's an interesting choice because Gayatri Spivak, you know, very important post-colonial feminist theorist, uh, whose writing is exceedingly difficult to penetrate. Um, I agree. It is (laughs) is very, very obscure. And one of the things that you need in order to make any kind of sense of Gayatri Spivak's writing is a very serious grounding in philosophy. You need to know your Heidegger. You need to know your Hegel. You need to know your Marx. Um, you need to know your Plato if you're going to make any sense of what Gayatrius Spivak is saying, even though what Gayatrius Pivak is saying is often deeply challenging of some of the dominant values in that philosophical tradition.
0: Right. I agree. I agree. Well, let's turn to the, the four big writers. The first that you engage is St. Augustine. And one of your claims left me scratching my head, I'll convince, namely that Augustine convinced you to become an atheist. So I can understand when atheists point to the more distasteful passages. In Augustine, uh, so that they don't have to defend their own atheism. They can just say, uh, look how monstrous that is. Uh, But your reading seems to come from a place of respect for Augustine, not of contempt.
1: So tell our listeners some more about that. Sure. Well, first, I have to correct your characterization. Uh, Augustine did not lead me to atheism. I'm not an atheist. Um, But Augustine did allow me to walk away from the kind of Christianity that I had been, that I had uh, embraced. In, in, before I got to college, before reading Augustine, um, uh, 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 what one might call fundamentalist uh, brand of Christianity. Um, that is, Augustine, up to that, up to, up to the point where I encountered Augustine, I had never encountered a Christian who was also committed to the intellectual pursuit of truth. Uh, my version, the versions of Christianity that I knew before Augustine required you to suspend um, your your rational faculties, that is to uh, deny things that your reason um, told you were the case, um, and to believe things that your rational and honest intellectual investigation told you could not be the case. Um, And Augustine gave me, showed me the possibility of a fiercely spiritual, devout, Faithful inquirer, seeker, who was also at the same time committed to rational investigation, intellectual pursuit of the highest good, um, and it came as a real revelation to me, and it liberated me into to, to the possibility of uh, living an intellectually honest life, that is, of 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 never having to believe what I did not really believe. Um, And um, one of the reasons I I, I respect Augustine is because of his capacity to do this. His capacity to offer the possibility of reconciling the deepest, most devout forms of spirituality with intellectual honesty and philosophical consistency. Um, So I I, I absolutely, Found Augustine uh, not only kind of commanding my respect, but but commanding my admiration and being deeply um, deeply deeply influential for me. Augustine touched not only my intellect but my heart, um, and that combination, that synthesis of intellect and heart, has been the the, the kind of guiding. Uh, light of my intellectual development nothing is satisfying to me that is not able to bring together um the heart and the mind
0: very good very good and i i do apologize i just now look back at page 48 of your book and you said that augustine invited you either to a different kind of atheism than what you came to him with or to a different kind of faith i i neglected yeah. the or in my <laughs> question so thank you for correcting that <laughs> Um, I do want to talk a little bit about where your chapter on Augustine lands. And it seems to be on this conviction that education for the sake of some ultimate aim, whether we call that ultimate aim, God or truth or something else is ultimately going to do a different kind of work and better work than education without a sense of, for the sake of, so I'm not going to ask you why. I mean, that's, that's fairly self-evident to me, but even at my little evangelical college, I have trouble getting my students on board with the, for the sake of, how does this work out at a, a very pluralistic place like Columbia university?
1: Well, um, Columbia, as you say, is indeed a a, a pluralistic place and, and different people have different visions and understandings of what education is. Um, you will find a whole range of that at Columbia on, on the faculty. Um, but Columbia has this, this undergraduate core curriculum, right? This this, this grade books-oriented required um set of courses that every candidate for the bachelor's degree at Columbia College has to has to complete, and in which faculty teach um in a voluntary basis. Faculty are not, are not forced to teach in it. Um so even in the core curriculum, in the core curriculum, you do have a very wide range of of visions of um, what the purpose of education is. Um, But there is a broad disposition that recognizes that truth is the good at which the intellect aims. That somehow that portion of the undergraduate education embodied in the core curriculum is to equip the student with the capacity to approximate some intellectually satisfying account of the world in front of them. Um, and even when that account includes, as, as, as for many faculty members it does, questioning the very category of truth, um, there is a, a kind of a deep commitment, a deep understanding that we are in the search for deeper, clearer, more consistent understanding of the complex reality in front of us. Um, And again, some people might call that truth. Some people might call that the ultimate good. Some people might even call it God. Um, But in a very broad, abstract, general sense, we are all, we teach in the core curriculum, guided by some notion of the value of learning for this broad humanistic capacity to account for the world as you experience it um, now i realize that that's that, that that's pretty ger- general but um the the notion that notion drives the very project of a liberal education that is the the the, the notion that you're not just preparing to master some narrow technical field of knowledge which with which you can go and make a living but that you are in fact exploring some of the deeper structures that are that are uh, common to all human existence
0: and i want to follow up on that because it is a broad understanding but it's not an uncontroversial understanding because Mm -hmm. there are certainly corners uh and unfortunately i mean you know as with Far too much of life in America in 2022. These corners are are dominated by the two major political factions, which I won't name right now, (laughs) Uh, but that would regard complexity as a kind of dodge. In other words, it's a sullying of moral purity. Uh, If you point up the complexity in a situation, uh, as has been well documented, uh, you can end up, you know, on the business end of internet trolls. You can end up on the business end of Twitter mobs. in your experience i mean you know uh have your students been aware of the controversial character of complexity in our moment
1: i'm not sure at least I, I i don't hear it spoken in that way um i think that that students are often um drawn to complexity and one of the one of the pleasures of the of the core classroom is Precisely to complicate what are often kind of facile and under examined commitments, ideological, moral, um, uh, political commitments that that students come in. That is, I find very often that students walk out of the courses with more questions, um, more skepticism, more um flexibility, more uncertainty about some of the of the deep questions than they walk out with more uncertainty about some of the deep questions than, than when they came in, precisely because complexity, the complexity of the arguments, of the ideas, um, of the realities of human existence become become clarified, become salient for them, because they become aware of them. Um, so my sense is that that in general, and and maybe I'm not entirely grasping the thrust of your question, but my sense is that in general, um, complexity is something that students find um, a valuable thing that this education delivers to them.
0: No, I th- I think you're exactly onto something, and and when my students are still my students, I definitely experience the same thing. What I have noticed, uh, and I feel like it's been in the last between five and 10 years, is that once my students have graduated and uh, I'm no longer in contact with them day to day, when I do correspond with them electronically, uh, a lot of times they start to suspect that I have drifted to the left or drifted to the right. And I find myself having to explain to them, no, I'm still just your old English Mm -hmm. professor who has more questions than I have answers. Uh, you're the one who's become more morally certain about the world.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I suspect that that is a, a function of what is happening to our discourse. Um, you know, we are at such an extreme degree of polarization that that nothing seems to be able to enter public discourse without being appropriated and denatured for... Um, you know, a tribal camp. Um, you know, think of vaccines, right? We are so lucky yes, indeed. to have <laughs> developed a vaccine that gives us some degree of protection from this terrible respiratory virus. Yeah. Um, a self-evident good, yet it immediately got mawed in the political ideological warfare that that we're in the middle, in the middle of. Which has really been terrible for everybody, right? It has it has meant that some people who would have um, gotten the vaccine are not getting the vaccine. Um, it means that um, the 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 uh, credibility of the government agencies and the scientific establishment has taken a hit, um, which diminishes its effectiveness, et cetera. Um, so even something as 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 uh, kind of empirically uh, tested and tried and and uh, as certain scientifically as uh, as it gets um, has been denatured and bended in this discursive polarization in which we live. So I suspect that your students, as they have as they have entered kind of the adult world and become put their education to use in, in in thinking about the world, have um also found themselves, it's very hard to maintain equipoise, very hard to maintain, you know, the, the 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 position you're describing, um, that you have maintained of 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 a kind of uh a kind of neutrality um or a kind of um objectivity, a kind of a kind of resistance to the tribalism of our polarized world now very, very hard to resist. And I, you know, just to throw another example with my book, um, it has uh, in some cases been adopted by kind of culture, by, by, by cultural warriors and deployed in yes, I, I heard about of... you on a
0: national review podcast. So yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um. So that it it certainly um, so I suspect that part of what you're experiencing from your student is is hearing back this extreme polarization in which we find our every piece of conversation in our society seems to be bending towards.
0: That that sounds about right. I uh, my my joke with my students is that uh, 20 years ago I was pretty sure I'm never going to be moral enough to be a good conservative. And now I'm pretty sure I'm never going to be moral enough to be a good progressive. So I, I, yeah, you got the joke. You got the joke. Dr. Montaz, I said I was going to go easy on the personal history questions and we have been so far, but I just have to know something. Um, you write that your father warned you at every turn against El imperialismo Yankee. And yet you ended up named Roosevelt. So I understand that it's a family name. I understand that it was handed down. Uh, I'm no American historian but I've read a little bit about the Spanish American War. Uh why are you Roosevelt Montaz?
1: Um well the first thing to distinguish is that that there are there, there are two I'm named after the the American president but there are two of them. Okay. Um, and the the one that I am na- named named after or, or rather the one that my father is named after. Yes, uh, is yes. Franklin Roosevelt. Um so, whereas whereas you know Teddy Roosevelt was had a very kind of aggressive and muscular foreign policy, which included a vision of of, of domination of, of our of our neighbors, um, Franklin Roosevelt, after whom I am named, has a very kind of different international orientation, and of course is is in the in the grips of this. World-defining struggle against fascism and Nazi ideology in Europe, um, and well, domestically to some extent too. But all, but domestically, engaged in this progressive re-architecturing of the American of American society. Um, so, uh, my father, who also is no American historian, and I think doesn't know a lot about American history. I suspect that he would be much more comfortable with the franklin roosevelt um baggage than with the teddy roosevelt baggage
0: very good i, I just had yeah. to ask though i, I like <laughs> i said that as soon as i read your father's story i said okay what how does he get named after roosevelt and then well, you and know, the answer is, it is it's the other yeah, roosevelt
1: <laughs> it's the other roosevelt and it was it was my grandmother he was born in 1943. okay um, and in 1943 of course franklin roosevelt is fighting hitler the Dominican Republic is is an ally of the U.S. Um, you know they didn't contribute much militarily, but but uh, it's a it's a resupply it, the, kind of the ports and the and the sea and airspace. It's so it's formally an ally of the United States in the Second World War. Um, and Roosevelt was is a hero um, as he is fighting Hitler. And my grandmother really apparently uh, was was taken by him and wanted to name her son after the American president
0: very good very good all right back to our conversation about education you warn against three dangers in curriculum design uh and of course i hear an echo of you know uh the three great evils at the end of voltaire's candide but your great three great evils are not boredom vice and poverty they are quote incoherence essentialism and tokenism end quote Mm -hmm. so take a moment on each of those if you don't mind what makes these so dangerous when we
1: design curricula so the, the idea that, I, that that curricula should reflect the demographic, that demographic diversity of the student body, which is a very common idea. You encounter it all the place that, you, that everywhere, you know, in a lot of places that, you know, if you have a, a student population say that it's, um, uh, you know, I don't know, let's say it's 30% African-American and, and 30% Hispanic and 30% uh, white or some, you know, some combination that somehow the, the the curriculum should reflect that, that, you know, if there, if there's this, this, this presence of, of say, South Asians, then the curriculum should have some South Asian texts and the same goes for the other, other ethnic traditions. Um, It's, it's rarely put so crudely, but, but it's often said something, it's often placed in, in the, in the language of, you know, students need to see themselves in the curriculum or the curriculum should be as diverse, uh, should have as di- as diverse a set of, of, of authors as our pop- as our student population. Um, and what I say is that, that does not make any sense for, for curriculum. Um, the criterion of democratic representation, of demographic representation, that makes sense for Congress and for politics. But when it comes to learning, when it comes to presenting the debates, the history, the knowledge that is most relevant to society today, uh, then it makes absolutely no sense to use as the guide um, demographic representation of the population. It leads to incoherence because when the guiding uh, criteria for the choice of curricula does not have to do with what the curricula says with the content of the curriculum, but with the demographic of the student body, you're not going to have, you know, like that's not going to produce intellectual coherence, and it leads to tokenism uh, and essentialism in the idea that you can like pick a Hispanic writer, pick a Black writer, pick a South Asian writer, and that that somehow is going to give you. The richness, the complexity, the humanity of that whole civilization and that whole culture. So what you end up is reducing some version of that of that of the complexity of that culture into some representative figure. And of course, um, it's, that, it's tokenism and it's essentialism because it imagines that people can be reduced down to these characteristics. Um, you know, and it's very obvious in take the case of Hispanics, uh, where with the we speak of Hispanics as if they were one ethnicity. We speak of Hispanics as if they were one culture, uh, as if they were one tradition. But but they're not. They're it's a it's a multiracial, diverse group. It's, it's diverse in religion, in in culture, in um, in, in 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 traditions, in politics. Um, so it, we do this kind of epistemological violence when we reduce a group to some kind of essence that we then choose a representative to to articulate. Um, So um, when you are organizing a curriculum, you have to begin from a sense of, uh, from from an intellectual position, a vision of what you want the students to learn. Um, And it is as a function of that, as a function of of an intellectual pursuit that you organize a curriculum in in general education in liberal education, when we are uh, equipping our students for a life of freedom in this democratic society, um, that's going to mean a particular emphasis on uh, on a coherent, diverse, yet coherent intellectual tradition. That is a tradition of debate and contestation. And a big conversation that has a lot of size and a lot of complexity and diversity to it, but that sticks together as a conversation.
0: That that's really good. And, and it reminds me of what I often have to tell my, uh, it's always my ministry students because their Bible professors tell them that, uh, certain theological ideas are not biblical. Those are Greek thought. And I always have to tell those students, I mean, there's no such thing as Greek thought. And if it is, right. then Greek thought is the name for a 2000 year long debate in which no one can agree on what's most important right exactly and 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 it's fascinating because i never thought about moving that up to um hispanic literature moving it up to african-american literature but i mean those things are just as true for modern bodies of text as they are for ancient ones so thank you for that i i I, I I never thought of that
1: connection but that's really good (laughs) yeah you know you take you take malcolm X and, and and martin luther king two figures that are living at the same time Right. are fighting for the same for the rights and well-being of the same community um and boy you know put them next put them next to each other and see if you don't have a diversity of uh ideology of of thinking of methods of goals um, boy you know you have abs- you know very very striking diversity there even though they're both african american leaders fighting for the for the rights and and dignity of african americans in the united states
0: Right, and then you know, take it even one more step beyond that. You take uh, the theologian James Cone's work from the 1980s, and he is synthesizing what he sees as the most important uh, energies in Malcolm and Martin, and you know, crafting a a black theology which is identical with neither of them. So yeah, I like yeah. that. I like that. I uh, yeah, like like I said, I, uh, I I actually didn't pick that up from reading your book, but as soon as I heard you say it, I said I I really should have thought that before, but uh
1: roosevelt is smarter than i am and i'm i'm happy with that i (laughs) i wouldn't i wouldn't say that it is it is it, it is conversation that 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 enriches and 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 makes complex our thinking
0: very good very good i want to turn to freud when you engage with freud you call on readers not to read uh with the expectation that they'll come away agreeing with the full theoretical framework but read freud for the sake of the fundamental ideas Uh, so, I mean, is that a rubric that you'd recommend for most of the texts that students in a core curriculum sequence encounter?
1: Yes, it is. I, 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 I ask myself and I encourage my students to ask in what way is such and such a thinker right? Um, so that way of reading Freud, where you're out to grapple way, take, take stock of his fundamental ideas. Um, it's the same way that I ask students to read Augustine, say. You know, I have students who are Jewish, I have students who are Muslim, I have students who are atheists. I have students who are Christians, I have students who are Catholic and Protestant and Eastern Orthodox, etc. cetera. Uh, Buddhists, I don't have them read Augustine so that they can be persuaded of the doctrinal theological message that Augustine is delivering. Yet, there are some, some profoundly important issues and debates, um, insights that Augustine brings into the picture that are gonna be valuable for the Buddhist and the Muslim and the, and, and the Jewish person and the non-religious person. Um, so the same thing goes with Freud. You don't need to kind of swallow whole his um, whole kind of theoretical clinical view account of uh, of the human mind. That does not in any way um, invalidate the power, the insight, the significance of the ideas and challenges that Freud puts in front of us. And if you take that seriously, um, so there, you know, there are two ways that you can that you can take Freud or Augustine, both of which are, are are ways of not thinking, because you know people, and that's one of the things that education tries to counteract. The tendency in people to not think. People will go through great extents to not think. And part of what we do in education is to challenge and, and and get them to think. But you can you cannot think about Freud and not think about Augustine in two ways. One is to swallow whole their doctrine and become a kind of religious um, doctrinaire uh, fanatic, whatever you know. Treat it like like holy scripture. Treat it like whatever they say is right. Then you don't have to think about it. The other way of not thinking about it is to reject the whole thing. To simply say, Augustine, Freud are fundamentally wrong, misguided, I don't need to pay attention to what they say. Um, It is in between those that the thinking and the growth and the study happens. When you take their ideas seriously, and you, you know, there's an old saying, people say, chew the hay and spit out the sticks. Um, In what way are they right? um how is what they're saying valuable, insightful, what are they on to hear? I don't have to agree with everything and I don't have to reject everything. I can be myself a thoughtful inquiring, alert intellectual thinking about the same things that they're thinking. Uh, and when you do that with Freud um it you find in Freud some very, um, what can I say, some insights that will reorient the way that you think about yourself, that can reorient the way that you look at art, the way that you look at conversation, the way that you look at relationship, the way that you look at religion. That is the big questions that concern our human existence are illuminated in a very powerful and productive way by Freud. And that's why Freud has had such, like Marx, has had such a profound impact on, intellectual thought on scholarship in academia, even as Freud is largely ignored in psychology department and Marx is largely ignored in economic thinking, uh, yet they've introduced such powerful paradigms, such powerful methodologies of interpretation and analysis that they um, have have had a a, a kind of uh, decisive influence in our intellectual culture.
0: Very good. And, and, uh, and I definitely found a kindred spirit in this passage, because I often tell my own students, um, most of Plato's answers, I think are terrible, but he raises questions that I never would have raised left to my own devices. And that's why I keep reading him. And that's
1: why I keep teaching him. Exactly. It is not for the answers, but for the questions that we read these books.
0: Very good. Very good. Your last full chapter presents Mohandas Gandhi as the good guy. And The Adversary is a writer that, uh, as we record today, I I start teaching again tomorrow and I teach with some frequency, namely Friedrich Nietzsche. So leave our our listeners to to some reasons to buy your book, because they should. But tell us just a little bit about this clash between divine truth and instrumental truths.
1: Yeah, Um, thank you. Um, What are you teaching um, of Nietzsche tomorrow?
0: Uh, I am starting an online class uh, called Religion and Philosophy, and uh, mm-hmm. the two main texts are the Genealogy of Morals, and then Alistair
1: McIntyre's book After Virtue. Great, great. Um so Nietzsche is such a powerful thinker, and you know, i I take Nietzsche and put him up against Gandhi. And part of what I do is to is to uh, point to a way of thinking and asking. And a challenge that Nietzsche poses. Now, Nietzsche himself is much more subtle and penetrating than many of his descendants. Um, Isn't and, that and true I mean, of it, so many great writers? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, and um, part of uh, part of what I put Gandhi against is the Nietzsche's descendants. And what many of Nietzsche's, and I think many of the post-structuralist, uh, post-modern deconstruction um, associated with the, with the intellectual movement that we broadly call deconstruction, many of those writers, uh, to me, come come straight out of Nietzsche, and I think take Nietzsche to places that Nietzsche would not go himself. Um, but the 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 kind of representative, um, so so, let me. Let me just describe the thing that I that that, that Nietzsche opens up—the rip in ethics, metaphysics, truth-seeking that Nietzsche uh, that Nietzsche that Nietzsche opens up. Um, Nietzsche begins to question the very possibility, the very idea of truth, um, and the very idea of virtue. Nietzsche is interesting—not in interested—not in the say um, value of moral. Um, uh, of moral truth, but in values for whom, that is what um, purposes um, does having a particular moral value advance and who benefits and who shapes and promotes and for what end particular moral values. The same goes with truth. Nietzsche raises the possibility that the notion of objective truth, the kind of Platonic idea that truth exists out there, for uh, as a as a as an self sufficient, independent, stable, eternal uh, entity that we can approximate with our intellect, Nietzsche raises the possibility that, that is a complete illusion that there is no such thing as an independent uh, truth that is independent from the perspective in which you see it that the truth is always going to be perspectival, that the truth is always going to be a function of your particular interest, of your particular positionality, of your particular situation, and that there is no truth outside of that that's accessible to us. Some of Nietzsche's descend- descendants take that the, those very disturbing and profound questions that Nietzsche raised and kind of just embrace it as the final word. Um, and it produces the intellectual climate in which we live today where the dominant paradigm in i think the highest kind of intellectual the, the highest um intellectual you know spheres in 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 in, in academia really um If not to say deny, at least do not embrace the notion that there is such a thing as truth, where there is such a thing as 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 moral and ethical um standards. Um, there is a kind of pervasive skepticism in intellectual culture about notions of truth and virtue and excellence and ethics um, that comes out of that Nietzschean tradition and that is, as I say, dominant in in uh, in our our Intellectual postmodern intellectual climate. So I read Gandhi as a a sort of antidote, or as a, um, a so, as a thinker, an actor that recuperates the notion of truth, um, that recirculates a notion of truth, of morality, of um, of, of ethical goodness um that i think stands its ground against this kind of philosophical assault that you get out of the continental european philosophical tradition um and i teach gandhi at the end of of a course in western a year-long course in western political thought um and find that students um are deeply deeply um influenced, uh, deeply spoken to by Gandhi's, just, you know, in a way, very simple, and well, (laughs) in other ways, not simple at all, but a very kind of straightforward defense of truth and the possibility of a human life oriented towards the pursuit of truth.
0: And, and I think that's interesting, because I mean, when I read your stories about teaching Gandhi, I've not taught Gandhi myself, but it did bring a smile to my face, because so many of my students enter my classroom. And, and even though it's an evangelical college, I mean, their highest deity is the American God, get a job. And, uh, you know, to what extent I mean, do your students stand up to careerism, when Gandhi invites them to forsake the pursuit of body bodily luxury? Because I mean, it seems like yeah the very purpose of college in a lot of minds is to acquire more material possessions and more material comfort. And Gandhi is telling them if you want to pursue truth, you have to forsake those Mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, to what extent are students willing to do that? Because when they read Christian authors who call for that, they are very good at explaining why it doesn't apply to me.
1: Yeah. Well, what I find is that students sometimes are like rubbing their eyes and disbelief that that somebody's actually being serious about this case because it resonates One, you know one of the things about gandhi one of the things about just this 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 message that you've described here as as the pursuit of truth requiring a kind of ascetic turning away from the materialist values of the world it kind of right. requires it, it has to do with a, your
0: body not just your mind
1: yes right um it it, it requires a um an aesthetic with uh, some degree of ascetic withdrawal it requires a different um way of looking at the world than the highest goal is material security comfort and pleasure um and um so that for i've seen so many students for whom that resonates in a powerful way and it really shakes them um it really makes them reconsider what the dominant para- cultural paradigm that they have encountered, that sometimes they have adopted, um, it, it causes them to question that. It, it saw some kind of skepticism. And I've seen that in my own life and I've seen it in many students, how Gandhi really reorients their priorities, really reorient um, their valuing and their how they want to live their lives. Now I should say, it's not just Gandhi because there is a tradition very much in the West of Christian and non-Christian thinkers um, that with, with which this resonates. Like in Plato, Plato is very, very explicit about the fact that the intellectual pursuit of truth is going to require the reorientation of bodily appetites. Not, you know, sometimes I might say the suppression, but certainly not the, uh, it requires a denial of indulging bodily appetites, that, the pursuit of truth, and you have writers like you know Virginia Woolf or Thoreau or W. E. B. Du Bois um, that offer very profound critiques of the materialist um, uh, sort of hedonism light. Um, notion of the of the human good. So Gandhi is not is not unique in that, but Gandhi is especially compelling because Gandhi lived the kind of life he did and because he puts these commitments into action in such a dramatic stage, um, it is it, it is it's very compelling and very kind of accessible to students. Um, but I should just to kind of bring this this response to your question, kind of wrap it up is to say that liberal education, is a kind of um, a kind of antidote, or a kind of um, inoculate. It, it aims at giving us a, a certain inoculation against these materialist values that pervade our society. Um, that is, you, with a liberal education, saw so deep skepticism to the reigning capitalist, consumerist values of our society. It's why it is so critical, so necessary to have liberal education as part of a college education Uh, because we need to give students a kind of ray of light, a possibility of living a life that is oriented towards the highest goods, not the lowest goods.
0: Very good. And that actually leads pretty nicely uh, into what I'd like to think of as you know one of the last questions here at the end, because your book returns here, I want us to return as well. In your book's closing paragraphs, you reiterate that liberal learning can and should constitute America's college education, not replacing specialized professional learning, but serving alongside the same. So uh, you know what kinds of things are going to get better for young Americans once everybody gets on that train. With Roosevelt Montaz and his cheerleader Nathan Gilmore.
1: <laughs> well, some of the things that are going to get better is our capacity to speak to each other, and our capacity to listen, um, our capacity to tackle unprecedented problems that are bearing down on us in a uh, unstoppable way. Um, as a civilization, we have crossed thresholds in artificial intelligence and gene editing in climate change that will um, reshape civilization as we know it. The future is going to be really different than the past in ways that are historically unprecedented. We will be better at facing that future at together metabolizing and addressing the problems that it raises with a liberal education. Um, In my view, liberal education is more critical, more urgent today than it has ever been, precisely because we are in this historically unprecedented um, moment. Um, Life on earth and human civilization have never have never encountered the kinds of things that are that that that, that, I'm, that that I'm describing here. Driven by technology, driven by genetic engineering, driven by the climate change that we are caught that we are causing, and have been causing for 200 years by transferring carbon from underground to the atmosphere. Um, so it's going to make us better at those things. Um, it's I think the possibility of a better society, of a better democratic society hinges fundamentally on our capacity to educate our students liberally.
0: Very good. I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I'm gonna let you have the last word. What are one or two questions that you want our listeners thinking about, great books, liberal education, or whatever else, as we head for the door?
1: I would like people to think about what it means to be a free individual in our contemporary society. Um, That is, freedom comes with an an inescapable degree of responsibility, right? Freedom means that you do, you're free to do something, but it also means that you live with the consequences of those doings, of those actions. Um, So, at every level with your family, with your community, with yourself, what does it mean to have the kind of freedom, liberty and affluence, which is the asp- is, 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 is is context in which you can exercise the freedom, this extraordinary affluence, again, historically unprecedented that we live in. What does that mean for us? How, what kind of free life? are we preparing, are we uh, wishing to live? Uh, How do we manage and exercise our inherent freedom?
0: Roosevelt Montaz, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles.
1: It's my pleasure, Nathan.
0: Listeners, thank you for downloading and for listening in. The book is Rescuing Socrates, How the Great Books Changed My Life and Why They Matter for a New Generation from Princeton University Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Brit Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.